Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So over the last uh, a couple of weeks, we've been spending time with what is typically known from scholars as Jesus's farewell discourse. Uh, the bulk majority of the teaching is in John 14 through 17. We just started looking at John 14 last week. But the precursor to that, they're still together in this farewell discourse setting. They're eating a meal together. Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. Uh, this is also the time in which Judas leaves to betray Jesus. This is a time in which Peter... Uh, claims to be beside Jesus and will be beside Jesus for the length of his ministry, although Jesus says, Peter, bro, you're going to deny me. Um, and it's, it's a difficult moment for Jesus in his ministry here, but what we see is Jesus setting up to this point of teaching in John 14 through 17. Last week, we looked at a handful of verses. It begins in verse one. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. There are many rooms. Uh, some people we have in the, in the back of their head uh, mansions or things that are built onto this existing Father's house. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am there, you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Last week, we talked about how this was structured theologically. These are some big fancy words here. Whether this was a future eschatology where Jesus is talking about what will take place in the lives of his disciples way beyond, maybe even beyond the grave for them, or if this was a realized eschatology where Jesus is securing victory and bringing that to bear here and now for his disciples. And last week we talked about how, for the most part, when people talk about John 14, they have this sort of image of people flying off into the celestial bodies and living in the mansions that God has prepared for us in glory, and we will be there However, I told you that maybe not in this passage. One point of clarification here is as Jesus is talking to his disciples, the, the, the image that we have of these saints flying off into these, uh, these mansions or these rooms here is not happening in John 14. I would also argue that it's not really happening in the New Testament as well. But what I don't want to take away is the thought of heaven for you. I would like us to maybe deconstruct what heaven looks like. But in John 14, what Jesus is saying is, 
I'm going to prepare a place for you, and that's going to come to bear when I show up again after my resurrection, because where I am, you are going to be as well. I will be in you, he says. The Spirit, my Spirit will be in you. Me and the Father will be dwelling in you. And this is important for Jesus as he's talking to his disciples in the early verses of John chapter 14. He says again, uh, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, we know Thomas. Thomas plays a pretty big role in the book of John. What moniker do we know Thomas by? Doubting Thomas. He always wants to have the evidence. He wants to have, you know, he wants to place his hands in, in the holes in Jesus' body and in his side before he believes that this is resurrected Jesus standing in front of him. We'll look at that later on in the Gospel of John. But here he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? That is a, a beautiful picture of the Apostle Thomas with some of my own renderings included. But Thomas has no idea what's happening here and he calls Jesus on what he's saying. You're talking a big game, Jesus, but we don't know where you're going. How can we follow you? N.T. Wright says that Thomas in character in this passage is grumpy. What do you mean we know the way? We don't even know where you're going, Jesus, he says. And Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And now Philip responds, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Philip also has no real idea what's going on as Jesus is, is rolling out all of his grand plans. And this is not really weird for the Gospel of John. This is not really weird for any of the Gospels. Jesus very plainly talks to his people about what's going to take place. Hey guys, I'm gonna die, but don't worry, in three days I'll be raised from the dead. What? We have no idea what you're saying. Jesus speaking very clear and, and plain to his people, but they don't quite know what's going on. Thomas doesn't know. He doesn't think that he even knows where Jesus is going, so he can't know the way. Philip doesn't know what's happening because there's this divide between the Father and Jesus. And Jesus responds, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? And then Jesus rounds out the section that we'll be looking at with some, some very pointed uh, instruction. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. All throughout uh, the majority of the early chapters of John, Jesus is attempting to link the Father with him. I am one with the Father. They are part of the, of the same entity. And here it's the same. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you don't believe, then, then believe because of the works. You see the things that I'm doing. The first 11 chapters of the book of John, commonly known as the book of signs, Jesus has done all of these miracles that are attempting to, in John's gospel at least, to demonstrate the identity 
of who Jesus is. And now Jesus is coming back to that saying, listen, you guys have been with me for so long. If you don't believe the words that are coming out of my mouth right now, then believe all of the things that you've seen up until this point because they testify about me and they testify that I and the Father are one. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. That's good news. It's good for you, he says, that I will leave because when I leave, I will give to you my spirit. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Word of God for the people of God. God. There's a lot in there that we could unpack, right? What is Jesus talking about when he says, whatever you ask me to do, I will do? What does it mean when Jesus says that you guys are gonna do greater things than I have done? We're not gonna address any of that this evening because before we get to there, there's a line uh, that I think is loaded and difficult. And at least if you're anything like me, you have a lot of, Baggage is pejorative, but you might have a lot of baggage with this particular text. You at least have a lot of background with this particular text. You have heard this particular text. It might be meaningful to you, maybe even in the story of your salvation, perhaps. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again, N.T. Wright is is helpful for us in framing this discussion. Jesus' reply to Thomas' question has haunted and confronted the world's imagination ever since. I am the way. If you want to get to the Father's house, Jesus says, you must come with me. It's problematic for many of us because as enlightened 21st century, rational people. When we hear that line, no one comes to the Father except through me, perhaps we feel the weight of its exclusivity. Perhaps we feel the weight of that as we consider other people, other religions, other uh, frameworks of thought. Perhaps we feel the weight of that as we just think about our own uh, lives. It's exclusive. It's a touch arrogant. Let's, let's divorce the fact that this is coming from, from Jesus here for a second, okay? Scholars, side note, do disagree as to whether or not these words in red are actually uh, attributed, can actually be attributed to the historical Jesus. That's a separate conversation. Remember, these people are putting together gospels based on shaped history. This is one of the latest gospels, probably written in about 90 or so, 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So John, what he's doing with this gospel is very weird. It's very different than other gospels. And some scholars like to quibble and figure out what did Jesus actually say and compare the four gospels together. But let's just leave that discussion off to the side for a moment. Perhaps you've heard these words on the lips of people like you and me. And in conversations, to maybe people of other uh, religious perspectives, they might utter either to their face or behind their back that Jesus is the only way and we know what will happen to these people when they die. And maybe when we hear that sort of uh, verbalization, we think, that sounds a bit arrogant. We don't 
you don't really know. It, it, it seems exclusive. It seems arrogant for us to use this verse. And on the surface, it also seems a bit nonsensical, at least the way that we handle it right now. That is because when we think about things beyond, we immediately go to the what about statements. Well, what about people who died before Jesus? If it says that the only way to get to the Father is through Jesus, then what happens to the people that are dead before Jesus ever showed up? And what happens to the people who have never heard of Jesus, past, present, and future? What about the people who live in the jungle, if you will? I don't know about you, but whenever I was in youth group, and my youth group was really strange, we would have these sorts of theological conversations, but someone would inevitably say, what about the tribes people? What about the jungles? <laughs> like, we just imagine that there are these places somewhere because we've seen a few movies, and we say, what about, what about it? Uh, what's gonna happen to these folks that apparently all 14-year-old uh, you know, white kids have a real burden for um, <laughs> wanting to know that to be, to be assured of their eternal salvation? What about the people in the jungles? What about the people who are faithful in their own, I've got a parenthesis here, culturally embedded religious system? Have you ever thought for a moment one of the main reasons why, I, this one's gonna hurt, I should have prefaced this. This whole talk, it's gonna hurt, but I'm gonna land this plane, okay? So stick with me, take all the jabs, and then we'll come back home, okay? Arm in arm, really excited about what's, what's happening here. But have you ever thought for a moment that if you weren't born on a pig farm in Laurel, Delaware, 38 years ago to Christian parents, this is a really specific example, isn't it? I'm talking about me, I'm I, it's just me. But have you ever thought that if you weren't born where you were to your parents, which is really, if nothing else, I'm gonna leave providence and, and God's hand and things off to the side, really a stroke of luck, that you are where you are and who you are, and did you ever think that part of your religious commitments that is largely due to that positioning, why you're so lucky and other people aren't. The folks who are born to a family of a different religious persuasion in a different part of the world, who are also doing the best that they can with what they've been given. The people who are faithful in their own very culturally embedded religious system, what about them? Because at some point when you lay your head on the pillow, you think, why am I in and they're not? Why do I know that I have the answers and they don't? What about people who seem to be more in touch with Jesus than Christians do? I hope this isn't an offensive statement, but we're all on Facebook. Christians can be awful from time to time, right? And sometimes we are the guilty ones that, that play that role. But sometimes when you compare, which is always a dangerous thing to do, and you see the love of Jesus manifesting itself in this person who's being a huge jerk versus this other person over here who actually seems to be demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, how do you measure that? This person wins because they said the right prayer and this person loses because they didn't. How do those things go together? Especially when we hear this passage from Jesus, if no one comes to the Father except through him, except through Jesus, then what does that mean? Who does that exclude? When I was in college, uh, I was in, I've told you guys this, we've joked about this, I went to a Bible college, uh, it was a thriving, liberal, very progressive, 
system where the girls could wear pants. Um, that, was a, that was my zing there, okay? Uh, it was not liberal in any sense of the term, okay? Um, it was very cloistered. But I look back and I learned a lot from people that I really, to this day, respect, even if we have come to disagree on a handful of things. But as I was a part of what's called the Bible Education Program, I spent four years learning how to teach the Bible in a private Christian school. And I remember when I told dad, I said, dad, I'd like to go to Bible college. And he said, oh, don't do that. <laughs> oh, don't do that. You're gonna really limit your options. And I thought, well, dad, I think I know what I'm getting myself into. And look at me now, dad, it's all worked out. <laughs> I was a Bible education major, learning how to teach the Bible to people, and part of that program was they saw something in me. I was a huge nerd, and really what I wanted to do was teach in the collegiate level. Those jobs don't exist, especially for people like me anymore, so now you know, I was, I, was uh, I won't say condemned, but I spent some time teaching in, in the high school system, but I remember they were trying to, they were, they were trying to prepare me uh, to teach college, so I interned with one of the theology professors, and part of my assignment was to teach through this book. It's a four-views book on salvation in a pluralistic world. And for our cloistered, very conservative Lancaster Bible College community, there was really only one right answer out of this book, but it at least exposed us to a handful of things. I remember, and I'm having some flashbacks tonight, as I hear some of the things that are coming out of my mouth, I was also interning at a youth group at the time, uh, with my friend who was the youth pastor. And their uh, interim minister one day was reading a sermon, as folks in the United Church of Christ do, they like to read sermons, and I'm not gonna throw stones at that because I like to read sermons too. You know what you're saying, you're very prepared, okay, whatever. Um, and one of the lines was he was talking about, uh, about, I believe it was Gandhi, and said some really positive things and then began to question Gandhi's eternal salvation. And me, as a very conservative uh, Bible college student and my very conservative youth group, uh, youth pastor roommate and a couple of very conservative people in the church, we got up in arms and we said, whoa, this cannot stand because I've read this book about salvation in a pluralistic world and we know that the right answer is called particularism. Jesus is the only way, and we can't talk about the fate of other people. We can only prognosticate about those who have placed explicit faith in Jesus through prayer at some point in their life. They're in, and everybody else is out. And I was a maniac about this um, to some degree. And some of the hypotheses that were given to me at some point, I remember at one, at one time, this was uh, maybe a year or so later, I was teaching a Sunday school class to adults, and I forget what the subject was, but there was a, a woman, she was probably 24, 26, and she was over on this side of the room, it wasn't in this room, but I can remember the way, the, how it was mapped out to this day, like she was over here, and after I'd been talking about something probably really insensitive uh, towards real people's lives for the sake of theology and my own nerdiness, I see her like through tears raise her hand and say to me, 23-year-old seminary genius, my grandmother is Buddhist. Is she going to hell? And I said, yeah. 
because I've read this book and because I take it really seriously and because I know the right answer is particularism. We're gonna circle back to this story, okay? So there's at least three different systems. You can tell it's a four views book, but there's really just two views on the particularism side here. I don't really wanna get into it too much. And I'll also go ahead and tell you, like, I'm outside of my field at this, at this point in time. Me talking about theology feels a little bit like me talking about economics. You know, it's just like, it, it, it's, a small, it's a small nuance. You think like, well, you talk about the Bible every week. It's a little different, okay? It's a little different, me talking about the ancient Near Eastern context and me talking about theological and philosophical ideas. I usually defer to some other folks in the room on my theological and philosophical ideas. But just to give you a, a, a very easy entryway into these views, uh, we have religious pluralism. Through the lens of John Hick, who is a, a prominent scholar in, in this field, he says, if we define salvation as being forgiven and accepted by God because of Jesus's death on the cross, then it becomes a tautology, that means like it becomes redundant, that Christianity alone knows and is able to preach the source of salvation. He's saying if we say that Jesus is the guy and his death and his resurrection is the only way that people can come to faith, then of course we're going to say that Christianity alone knows and is able to preach the source of salvation, but if we define salvation as an actual human change. And I'm not on, on Hicks' side here on a lot of things, but we can stop there for a second and at least begin to question, is salvation dependent upon your right answer or is salvation dependent upon life change and transformation? You know what I mean? And even there, I don't want to go go too far, because we could immediately start thinking about, well, what about deathbed confessions and things of that nature? And I'm not here to talk about that, but I'm here to talk about at least the Christian community that say, I know the right answer, and then they, they live it out in this jerk-like way. I don't know if they're really understanding the love of Jesus, but he says, if we define salvation as an actual human change, a gradual transformation from natural self-centeredness to a radically new orientation centered in God and manifested in the fruit of the Spirit, then it seems clear that salvation is taking place within all of the world's religions. This is the important part. He says for Hick, that it seems clear that salvation is taking place within all of the world's religions and taking place, so far as we can tell, to more or less the same extent. If you need an image of this, we're gonna come back to this time and time again. If we have a mountain, right, and we have all of us down here, this is all of humanity, look at us. Oh, that guy's got a weird arm there, I don't know what, what, what happened. We've got all these people, and at the top is not Jesus, right? It's something that Hick would refer to as the ultimate real or the ultimate reality or the divine. We don't want to put a label on it because the way that uh, different religious groups define it is different. But for Hick, he would say that everybody's heading up the mountain, at least if they have an ethical uh, religious system. Uh, I don't know what he would do with people that are absolutely terrible, here and now, and their religions are absolutely terrible. Think for a moment of, oh, what's that Baptist church? 
Westboro, Westboro Baptist Church. I don't know what John Hick would do with them because they're not really living out an ethical system so much. I believe that he'd probably say there's some grace there. But all these people are having legitimate expressions and they are all going to the top of the mountain, which is kind of a metaphor for salvation. And they will all meet the real and the divine and not anybody at this point has a real handle on uh, who that is. So for some people, it might be you're going through Jesus. For other people, you might be going through uh, the Buddha. For others, you might be going through something different. So you have all these paths. They're equally legitimate. We're all going to the top of the mountain where we're going to see the ultimate real or the ultimate divine. Does that make sense? Yes. This is called religious pluralism. It's kind of a everybody wins, everybody gets to the top of the mountain. We can contrast that with particularism because particularism would say, through the lens of N.T. Wright, the trouble with pluralism, this system here, is that it doesn't work. If you dethrone Jesus, you enthrone something or someone else instead. The belief that all religions are really the same, which is what some uh, religious pluralists would say, it sounds nice and democratic, Though the study of religions quickly shows that it isn't true. He goes on to say, it isn't just John's gospel that you lose if you embrace this idea. The whole New Testament, the whole of early Christianity insists that the one true and living God, the creator, is the God of Israel. He's distinct. We know him because the Bible tells us who he is. And the Bible is different than any other sacred text. And our sacred text has the, the truth of the matter, and we can trust that. He goes on to say, the God of Israel has acted decisively within history through Jesus to bring Israel's story to its proper goal and through that to address and rescue the world. There's, there's very notable differences here. So for anti-right and other particularist system, at the top of the mountain is Jesus. We know it's Jesus because of the crown and the beard. Yay, that's Jesus. And we got all these people down here, and the only ones that are making it to the top are the Christians. For most people, the ones that have placed explicit faith in Jesus, because we have passages like this that help us along, Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Or Romans 10, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is an important text here because it says you're praying these things specifically. You are announcing that Jesus is Lord. There's no text in the New Testament that has anything similar to a uh, sinner's prayer but we do have this sort of text here that's saying you must place your faith in Jesus and you must be explicit about that according to some readings of Romans chapter 10. Or John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. The kicker in verse 18, those who believe in him are not condemned but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. It's explicit in that you must do this, you can't do that. So the particularist would say that Jesus is at the top of the mountain and it's only through Jesus that we get to the top of the mountain. And then we have what's called inclusivism. Inclusivism is something between these two poles and some people have rightly um, given it some, some punches because it's like the happy moderate in between the two. 
But inclusivism would say, this is through the lens of Clark Pinnock, inclusivism believes that because God is present in the whole world, which is the premise, believe that God is everywhere, God is omnipresent, God is all over this place, that God's grace is also at work in some way among all people, possibly even in the sphere of religious life. That's the inference. If we believe that God is everywhere, then we must also believe, or we could probably believe, that God's spirit is present and God's spirit is moving amongst these people and using the religious systems that they are uh, inhabiting to make his name known. It entertains the possibility that religion may play a role in the salvation of the human race, a role that's preparatory to the gospel of Christ in whom alone fullness of salvation is found. So in other words... We've got one more mountain, and at the top, oh, it's Jesus, and he's, he's got a tail for some reason. I, I don't know. He's a centaur. Jesus is a horse figure, and there's lots of people down here, and they're all ascending the mountain. Now, here's the difference between the religious pluralism system and the particularism. Some of these folks are Christians. Like us, we get it. We, we have studied the scriptures, we've accepted Jesus, we've said the sinner's prayer, we've began to have our life transformed and be conformed to the image of Jesus, we get that. But then there's also some folks over here who might uh, be adherents of different religious systems. They might be Buddhists, they might be part of the Baha'i faith, they might be, yeah, they might be Jewish folks, they might be any different uh, religious group can ascend this mountain but when they get to the mountain top, what they see is centaur Jesus. <laughs> I've been reading a book in preparation, and that's where the centaurs just probably were just pouring out of my, my being uh, because of some of this, but I've been reading through the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia because I know that if you had to put C.S. Lewis into a camp, He's kind of here, which is weird, right? Because everybody loves C.S. Lewis. This is one of probably the only places in town where we can have this conversation as a sermon and you won't kill me in the parking lot. Thank you. I'm gonna speak that into existence at this point. No one will kill me in the parking lot. That's all good. Um, but C.S. Lewis, we, everyone loves C.S. Lewis, but his theology was sort of crazy. At the end of the last battle, we meet a character named Emmet. Emmet is, I would guess, based on a Hebrew word which means truth. And Emmet was one who served a different god, a rival god. Does anyone know the name of that god? Tash, you need to get back on your uh, Narnia kick, okay? There's too many parents in the room with small children. You need to... Whatever, I haven't read more than two words to my kids, Narnia, so I'll give, you, I'll give us all a pass, all right? I've been trying, though. I was like, Abe, do you wanna read Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? He's like, no, not at all. Okay, so Emmett serves Tash, and there's this battle at the end, and you can see these rival gods that are, you've got the Narnians who are uh, supposed to be loyalists to Aslan, and you've got uh, these other folks that are supposed to be loyalists to Tash. You've got these other people who are just somewhere in the middle. They, they've kind of left both alliances. But this guy over here, Emmett, when he reaches the end, he believes that he is going to receive the knowledge that he has chosen not wisely. 
he has served Tash when he should be serving Aslan, and that he believes that Aslan is going to give it to him. Now, C.S. Lewis, the way that he frames this is, Aslan, when he meets um, Emmet, says that he bends down his golden head and touches Emmet's forehead with his tongue. It's a weird image, right? But he's a lion, okay? It's like a friendly greeting, okay? <laughs> touches Emmet's forehead with his tongue and said, son, thou art welcome. But I said, this is Emmet, I said, alas, Lord, I am no son of yours, but I'm a servant of Tash, this rival God. And Aslan says, child, all the service that you have done to Tash, I account it as service done to me. So we've got these people serving rival gods that C.S. Lewis would say, reach the top of the mountain and see Jesus or Aslan and say, oh, I didn't know. This is, who is this? This is Billy Graham. Probably in our mind, like one of the most fundamentalist pastors of the 20th century. Like he had, he's, he's well known for having these uh, revival services and would fill up entire stadiums and he would give an altar call at the end as his piano player, whose name escapes me, plays, just as I am without one plea. And everybody would leave their seats in like tears, be like, I must accept Jesus. And Billy Graham is leading all these people to the Lord and people are like, Billy Graham, yeah, yes. Right, in 1997, Billy Graham gave a, an interview with a guy named Robert Schuler, who I believe is the pastor of a church called the Crystal Cathedral in Southern California. And Billy Graham says this, God is calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they have been called by God. They might not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have, and they turn to the only light they have, and I think that they are saved and they are going to be with us in heaven. Billy Graham. All the people in Shea Stadium that are leaving their seats and going down front, right, they're gonna meet Centaur Jesus, and according to Billy Graham, you've got some folks over here, uh, some Islamic people or Buddhist people that might not know, and they will see Jesus at some point in the future. He says they might not even know the name of Jesus, which takes us back to a Catholic scholar named Karl Rahner, who created this idea of the anonymous Christian, which is a little bit pejorative to other religious systems, right? To say like, ah, you don't really know what you're doing, but you're a Christian. You, you don't understand yet, but you're really on my team. You know what I mean? He took a little bit of heat for that, but still, he's saying that there's people out there in the world that are following Jesus, they might not even know it yet. We, we see some of this teaching as well within the, within the Catholic Church in Vatican II, where they make some of these statements as well. I've got a little video for you to watch. Uh, this is Tony Campolo, he's a Baptist minister, and this is what he says in response to this. The other side of that is an intolerance too. Mm -hmm. Yes others. I think that what we need is a society in which people really believe what they say they believe. I am an evangelical to the core. What we've got to do is we've got to have people who are humble, who say, this is what I believe, and I believe it with all intensity, but I am not about to make negative judgments about people who differ with me, because on Judgment Day, I don't know who's in and who's out. I am not God. I do not decide who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. 
if we can stop making negative judgments about each other and simply express what we believe with intensity and passion, if we can do that, we've got it made. Uh, People with passion who are non-judgmental of others. Uh, this is an age-old question. I want to move to some other things, but just stay with me on this. When Jesus says, I am the way and the light. That's right. What is he saying to his Jewish brothers and his Muslim brothers and his brothers from other places? I can only answer that with a story. And that's this. A friend of mine in, was in China and met a Buddhist monk. And he opened the Bible to him and explained to him the things of Jesus. The Buddhist monk was weeping as the story was told. And when my Baptist evangelist friend said, will you accept Jesus as your savior? The Buddhist monk said, accept him. I have always known this Jesus. You have given me his name. You have told me what he has done on the cross. You have talked about the resurrection. But even as you were speaking, his spirit within me was saying, as you read from the book, he's speaking of me. He's speaking to me. Now, what am I going to say? That Jesus was not a presence in that man before that Baptist missionary ever got there? I'm saying Jesus is alive in places where we so don't imagine. In fact, Jesus lives, or the idea of Jesus lives in the heart of whoever they are and whatever religion they're in. I am saying they can. I am saying there's no salvation out apart from Jesus. That's my evangelical mindset. However, I'm not convinced that Jesus only lives in Christians. There's the difference. But you've got to have Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is my savior. Okay. Where is Bill Clinton? <laughs> what, a what a beautiful cut. Uh, he was asking that, I assume, because Tony Campolo was one of those like spiritual advisors to, uh, to a handful of presidents, I believe, and did serve with, uh, with Bill Clinton. And the story of Tony Campolo is, is, is interesting, if nothing else. But here, the system that he's attempting to... to to live out is this inclusivist system. Now, when it comes down to it, we're gonna land the plane here. Religious pluralism, inclusivism, particularism, all these different systems where we've got people that think that they know what they're talking about, trying to chart stuff out and map things together. Like, who's right at the end of the day? When I got to this place at the end, like, what I don't want to leave you guys with is just this huge ball of, of confusion. But what I do think is an important and healthy first step is being able to say, this is, this, is, this is pretty big. This is a pretty massive topic. And when we play the role of the judge and the jury, maybe we're in the wrong place. Of the folks that, that I, I read to you and the, and the people that were kind of hanging out here, there was at least this humility in, I don't really know. And what I'm going to do is kind of lay on the side of God's mercy and God's goodness and, and hope that we find in Jesus. I also know that when we got to the end here, this big crescendo, right, it really makes for a terrible sermon. Because what is good is when the pastor can stand here and say, I know with all of the certainty in my body that this is true. And then all of you in the seats can say, whew, I'm glad that he's really confident and he knows and he's certain. I'm not, but I'm just gonna say that he spent the majority of his life studying his books, so I'm just gonna roll with him for a bit. And in this particular moment, I'm just kind of standing here before you saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I have invested my life in the study of these words to try to piece together what I believe to be a beautiful revelation of God, however we want to frame that. 
And that when we are living this transformed life, that the world will see that that is good and that that is compelling. When we are agents of justice and when we are agents of redemption and hope and peace, when we live that out, we provide a counter testimony to what the world sees. And for me, that is motivated by my commitment to Jesus. But I don't want to stand before you and say to the woman in the back who says, my grandmother is a Buddhist, is she going to hell when she dies? I've moved from 23-year-old, arrogant, kind of, I'm a seminary student, I have it all figured out, to 38-year-old, I don't know what I'm doing anymore, and all I'm doing is trusting in this massive grace of Jesus. And that led me, a year or so ago, to reach out to her, I couldn't shake her for, for those 15 or so years in between, and I thought, oh my gosh, like I'm still haunted by this conversation and this arrogance and this, this thing that I had and how I just destroyed all of the hope that she may or may not have had, so I reached out to her through Facebook Messenger. <laughs> and I like typed up this big thing and said, hey, you probably don't remember this. Of course she, of course you do. <laughs> I don't think you were, don't, you know, you don't forget a 23-year-old saying, yeah, your grandmother's going to hell. But I reached out to her and said, I don't know if you remember this, but I was teaching this class and I don't know what was going on, but I said this thing and, and I just want you to know that I'm in a different place now and I'm, I'm kind of done deciding who's in and who's out. And I might want to give you this little bit of hope that the love of God is all-encompassing, that the mercy of God is is wide in its scope. That it, it not only accepts people like me, but it helps people like me to understand that he is living within me. That he is allowing me to be a representative of truly good news, which is he's not done yet. And he is inviting all of us to partner with him, regardless of where you come from and what your past is and what your struggles are. We are all endowed with the image and likeness of a good God who is asking us to be participants with him as he restores this place to what it should be. So I have no clue about your grandmother, but I'm hopeful that when God is working in and through her, that God's will is still being accomplished. That's about the best that I can do right here and right now. And maybe for some of you, as you think about that conclusion being a little bit lackluster and thinking about what does that have to do with me here and me right now in this moment? Does this mean that I should go exploring other religions? I don't think that's necessarily the case, but what I want you to at least hear is the way that we have understood religion in the past and the certainty that we crave about our, our own rightness, I think is clouding the vision that we have for the amazing work that we have been tasked to do. To love God, to love people, to place them above and beyond ourselves, to become an agent of this good and beautiful and bold love. For me, the way that this makes sense is to see the life, death, and resurrection of God's son, Jesus. And I'm gonna give my life to following him and serving him. 
And I invite you guys to partner with me in that because the world needs to see more of that and less of Westboro Baptists. The world needs to see more of that and less of judgment and playing the role of judge and jury. The world needs to see more of that love so that they can understand and have something to hold on to with what this maybe is what God looks like because God is living in us reigning and ruling in us and inviting us to become his agents here and now. If you have never allowed yourself to accept that truth, do it. If you have never allowed yourself to be endowed with the worth of the image and likeness of the Most High God, do that. If you have always held yourself back because of the things that are keeping you at bay, hear the words that are spoken over the disciples, that are spoken over the followers of Jesus, that are spoken over the people of God. I will be with you wherever you are and in whatever you are doing. While we might not have all of the answers and this chart might make our heads spin, I think that where we can land our feet is in this beautiful, culminating belief that God loves, that God forgives, and that God invites. May we respond to that this evening.